Good morning. I'm grateful to be here. I know you didn't have a choice on who's here at all, uh, so just grateful for the warm welcome. There's familiar faces for sure in uh, a lot of you that I haven't met. Not to say that this will be a regular thing by any stretch for me to be here, but um, being connected with Matt and Lauren on the down low, so to speak, is truly a pleasure. I'm grateful for their leadership, both of them, in significant ways, and establishing a community of faith is not an easy endeavor, and they have done it with grace and uh, true wisdom, and I uh, appreciate uh, their temperaments, both of them, as they have worked very hard to establish a community here, so kudos to all of you that have been involved in that. This morning, we continue in this vision series. Well, it's the last one. Matt will kind of wrap it up, but I'm going to throw that slide up on the screen. Chuck Bomar is, well, he's our wizard of, uh, it's that spaceship looking one. Yeah. Does that look like an alien spacecraft? I think it does to me. I told him that and he was not impressed with that, but it, it seriously does paint a really interesting picture. This morning, we're going to Just take a look at generosity as uh, that value related to Colossae. But before we do, you can see that gospel-rooted undergirds all of that. And I would just simply tell you that God's plan for humanity after the fall, after uh, man said, hey, I think I can do this on my own, I don't think I need you, God, was truly to put into play a solution that all of us enjoy today, which is Jesus placing our faith in him. 2,000 years ago, when he stepped into the world, the world had tried to explain what was going on in their own set of values. And Jesus walks in and says, nope, I'm the creator, and here's what all of this means. This is how I set this up, this is why I set it up, and he starts to walk with values that are the creator's values. Now, if, you, if you're Jesus walking into that, it feels like you're walking upside down because the world's got him backwards. So he's walking upside down, uh, or actually right side up in an upside down world, and starts calling us to do that too. So right now, for us, it's the same call that he made back then, which was to call people to place their trust in God, place their trust in him, and to value what he values. And so, in our cultural moment, the elders, and that's all 18 elders for all of the congregations, have decided these values represent uh, what we need to be focused on in our cultural moment. So this is why you get the vision series, but we're going to try and walk into these values as we would interpret from God's holy word. So this is what Jesus valued. Hospitality. Thinking of the other And you just heard Curtis give a wonderful explanation of that. Um, You've walked through all the others. This morning, it's generosity. So that's where I want to dive in, okay? If if Jesus came into this world walking upside down and calls us to that, um, we are simply saying we want to walk right side up. We're going to look different. He is definitely calling us to become truly human and to be the most accurate witness of the God of the universe as we can possibly be. So, with that in mind, let's take a look at this. Um, 
mention the word generosity, how does that make you feel? <laughs> I know that uh, I have sat through my share of generosity sermons, for sure. So here's the preacher going to stand up there and talk about money. Um, if you're anything like me, you start to squirm just a little bit. And um, maybe you don't, but that's, that's me. That's what I feel like. Like, oh, wait a second. Am I as generous as I could be? That's usually the first question that I'm asking myself. And it quickly goes to the second question, which is a little bit stepped down. Am I as generous as I should be? <laughs> and I'm trying to find that mark. And generally what starts in my soul is just kind of a low-level hum of guilt. That's all. It's down there. It's pretty low, but it's like, oh, man. Do, are my values in the right place? And on a good day, I just ignore the hum. But generally, it just kind of stays there until there's enough time passes and I have to be prompted again. So here we are, being prompted again, confronted again to the, with this whole thing. But before we get started, I just want to declare some foundational truth related to this. You probably heard Matt speak to this. If you've listened to Chuck Bomar at all, You've probably heard this as well, but our God is a very generous God. It's his nature, and it gets referenced to Colossae most often as a self-giving God, giving of himself. Now, the difference for God is that generosity is not a virtue. It's his character. It's just who he is. It's his very being. He's generous. Now, when Jesus, as I told you, comes walking right side up in an upside down world 2,000 years ago, when he comes into the world, we know from the book of Hebrews that he is the exact representation of God. And so it is um, pretty easy for us to turn around, look at his life and the way he lived it, and to see what that actually looks like in human flesh. So it's God with skin on, and that makes it easier for us. Not some ethereal thought, but literally a human being, Jesus, showing up on the scene. So when we start to think of generosity, foundationally, I want you to see it as best you can. I'm trying to do the same thing, that it represents a generous life. Generosity, generally speaking, we think of it like in terms of resource and money. But we want to see it in a whole life perspective this morning. That's the way Jesus, the king, sees it. And so when we talk about being gospel-rooted, we are recognizing his reign and his rule right now. Not somewhere into the future, but right now. He steps in and says, this is what I value, and this is what my kingdom looks like. Now, we are pitted against the kingdom of this world, and they have a different way of looking at all those things. So we're, we're in this tension for sure. But as such, I think it's, imp- it's imperative for you and I to increasingly live into the reality of what it truly means to be human. We, when we do that, we're going to come into a fuller and truer sense of who we are and what we're capable of. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. However, the tension is, if that positive side of it is matched with something negative, it's that we live in this 
kingdom of this world, and it, it's represented by a fallen nature. And most assuredly, it affects us, even the ones who have placed their faith in Christ, it affects us with having a hard time trusting in God. That's really what it boils down to. Would I trust you with my life? Could I live in such a way as to trust you with all the things that I have? That's difficult. But I'll remind you this morning that he names you. And he loves you. And Jesus, in his sinless life, death, burial, and resurrection has completely satisfied the judgment of a holy God. So this morning, if you've placed your faith in Christ, when God looks at you, he sees the absolute righteousness of Jesus Christ. You say, man, those are really good words, Luke. But I don't feel that way. And I would tell you that I feel that. I know who I am. I know what I thought. I know my arguments from yesterday and friction inside the family and those things. And how in the world could God see me as righteous? Well, it's pretty critical this morning that we understand that God views us with the righteousness of Christ. Because this is what's going to be crucial to us even understanding generosity. So what's the paradox well, before we get to the paradox of generosity, let me remind you, and it was, it was uh, part of our call to worship this morning that Elise gave us his thought, is Jesus speaking to the idea of treasure, finances, money. And uh, I'm sure you've heard this before, but he speaks to money more than any other single topic in the gospel. Does, does that mean that that was the most important thing for Jesus? Money. No, I don't think so. I don't think he thought too much about money. If you're the God of the universe, why would you think about money? There's no reason to. But Jesus very definitely said this view of money that you and I would have would be a window into our soul, to our very heart. And so it becomes this place where Jesus can bring it up to say, where are we? Where are you? What is it that you treasure, this window into your soul? So with that thought in mind, we reach this paradox. The paradox is um, going to be illuminated this morning in two separate passages. It's Paul as the author. I'm going to come out of 2 Corinthians and 1 Timothy. I'll set that context in a second. But it's basically being able to see the tension in the kingdom of this world and the relief of realizing that Jesus' kingdom is here and now. We'll state the paradox here in a second. But if you would, I'd love for you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And if that's on your phone or Bible, great. If not, you can see the scripture passage up on the screen. Let me read you these verses here this morning. But just before I do, here's the context, real thumbnail sketch. Paul is um, not in Corinth, obviously. He's writing that letter to him. He's been in Macedonia, and he's been making his way through a number of communities there, but as, as uh, history depicts this, the church in Jerusalem has come under extreme persecution and has been very much disrupted to the point people have lost their jobs and their, uh, the church and the people in Jerusalem 
It's a bad season. And Paul has let the other churches know about it and said, would love to collect an offering to bring back to this other community of faith. So the Corinthian church was one of the first ones to respond to Paul by letter and say, we're going to give you an offering. And Paul has used that information as he makes his way through Macedonia to tell all the other churches, hey, Corinth has already committed. Can you guys jump in? So they're doing it. Macedonian churches are now giving to Paul. And as he's making his way, he's collecting that. He sends this letter to Corinth and basically says, I'm going to show up there. You said you were going to give me an offering. Don't embarrass me, (laughs) essentially. Because I've told everybody about your generosity. Okay, So that's the context of the letter. So Paul's now giving them some uh, substance to what this generosity looks like. Okay, So I'm going to pick up at verse 6 of chapter 9. It says this. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whenever sows, whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he's given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now, there are a number of things to look at there, but the first that we can see is this whole idea of sowing generously. And if I was just to put an equality sign there. Sowing generously really equals trusting God. And that's what Paul's saying. If you're going to trust in your own resources and you only have so much and you say, I really can't do that, God's coming along and saying, no, sow generously and reap bountifully. Now, this is not a prosperity gospel this morning. We'll, We'll see that here in just a second. But it's saying, can you trust God? Verse 7. Verse 7 says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. It's easier, and I think you can kind of feel the tension too this morning, if, if, if the preacher would just tell me, what do I need to do? How much am I supposed to give? Can I have that percentage or that little equation thing? Now, why is it that we're looking for that? Well, we come by it naturally. The people of God are always looking for a law or a standard. Makes life easier, doesn't it? Because if I can just hit the standard, then I don't have to think about this anymore. Right? So just give me the percentage, Luke. Just tell me how much I'm supposed to be generous. It's, It's right here, though, that in our desire, wanting so badly this... Uh, so that I can somehow figure out if I've given enough, that, that the question pounds us with the guilt. And that guilt compels us to give more in order to feel good about ourselves. Well, it's 10%. Well, maybe I can hit that. Then I feel like I, I got it. I'm good. Or sometimes it's like I can't get there, so I'm going to try and get to halfway or somewhere on that continuum. But the problem here is that the Bible, very precisely, does not give us that. 
You can go backwards into the Old Testament and talk about tithe, which just literally means 10%, and what that represented. But nowhere in the New Testament do we find that kind of instruction. So it's right here that the Bible says, hey, when your heart is right, your giving will be right. So where's our heart? Jesus said, show me your checkbook. I'll show you where your heart is. Oh, we don't use checkbooks anymore. I don't know how. We'd have to show them. Um, Our 401k, I don't know. It's on my phone, Jesus. Look at this app. I have to tell you all about it. But the point here is that Jesus is not giving us a way out. He's saying, it's in your heart. You are going to decide on your own. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So we do know that the adjective, the description of how we would give, would be cheerfully. So put that down and check it off and say, okay, cheerfully, there's, there's a requirement for my giving. Now, what does that look like? When we talk about a whole life kind of generosity, let me give you an illustration from my own life. It was a number of weeks ago that uh, my wife and I went down to my daughter and son-in-law's house. They have three kids, three grandkids, 14, 12, and 10. Matthew and Natalie have been married for almost 20 years. They have these three kids. I have two sons in Vancouver, and they have two and three kids respectively. So that's like eight grandchildren, right? Vancouver ones get a lot of attention because they're close. The others, not so much because it's Sacramento. My daughter graciously invites us to come down. Isaiah's graduating from the eighth grade. And, oh, by the way, could you stay with the kids for a week? (laughs) Because Matt and I would like to get away. We've both turned 40 this year. And we're almost 20 years married, and we've never been away from the children for longer than about two days in that time. My wife is a resource nurse for St. Vincent's, and um, she can dictate when she wants to work and when she doesn't want to work. It's no big deal. Um, But I have to take vacation. Vacation. (laughs) So... I'm going to go down to be with my wonderful grandchildren, and I'm going to vacate for like nine days. You're all laughing. I get it. Okay. So what happens? Well, if grandpa is grumpy because he's on vacation, not really, is that generous? No, it just makes for misery. So being generous is being in the moment and being intentional. That's really what it is. So going down to serve grandchildren, your heart needs to grow like the Grinch three times that day, you know, kind of a deal. It needs to grow so that you can engage. My wife does this no problem, okay, but it's not the way it works for me. I got to kind of gear into it. I got to get psyched up. I got to go, okay, no other distractions. Let me just focus here. 
So we're in it, and we're doing it, and it's, a, it's great, because they're old enough, we can go. We took a big, long bike ride. We were in kayaks one day. We were cave exploring another day. There was all kinds of things going on. It, it was really a great time. I'm not saying that it was super relaxing, like sit on a beach and look at the ocean, which is what I feel like I need to do to vacate, but it was great. It was a great time. And as I'm listening to the kids, mom and dad will FaceTime in the evening and just check in, how's it going? In the first couple nights, it's really quick. It's like, on the phone, we got stuff to do. It's going good. See you later, you know, kind of a thing. And um, as the week goes on, though, they start then saying, here's what we experienced today, and we did this and we did that. The unintended consequences of generosity are, though, by the time we get to the end of the week, they're asking mom and dad how their week is going. They're saying, it is so awesome here. How are you guys doing? And mom and dad are going... It's unbelievable, you know, because they've got to have coffee in a different coffee shop every day, and their, their little Airbnb is in the middle of the Redwoods on the Northern California coast, and there's no people, and no time schedule, nothing, and they're just, and what's crazy is mom and dad are super grateful, and the children are grateful that they're grateful. We got this big gratefulness fest going on, Okay. Except for Grandpa. He's going to know. <laughs> so here's the paradox then. Paul's saying, well, let's just take a look at it. Uh, verse 8. This is, states it succinctly. And God is able to make, if you're a cheerful giver, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. The generous person is given everything, all grace, all sufficiency, in all things, at all times. Perhaps that's money at some point, but maybe it's attention and words. And my children, my daughter and her husband, could not express their thanksgiving strong enough for the week. My grandchildren expressed their thankfulness. We expressed it to them. Here is what Paul's saying. The paradox is in giving, we receive. In grasping, we lose. And if grandpa is grumpy on vacation, trying somehow to eke out some time for himself... You don't get it, and you don't make anybody else happy. And the whole thing goes south in a hurry. This generosity is a whole life thing. So let's continue. Look at verse uh, 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us, will produce thanksgiving to God, which is true, was true for me. The ramifications and consequences of generosity, I could see in the reaction of my children and my grandchildren. It was crazy. So what do we know about this generous life? We know that it's actually a biblical sacrifice. It is a sacrifice when you choose to be generous. 
If it's not a sacrifice, then how could we term it as being generous? If you didn't need it, then how would it be generous? You'd just give it away, but there wouldn't be anything that you would understand about that as you giving up something. Biblical sacrifice is giving up something that you love for something that you love even more. That's what it is. It's not to say that a vacation on a sunny beach is wrong. It's not. I love that. But I love them more. I really do. So Paul's saying, here's the paradox. Open your hands. Start to give. You will receive. Because all grace abounds to you. All sufficiency in all things at all times. Trust me. That's Jesus saying, would you trust me? All right, let's look at uh, the next verses here in 2 Corinthians. Verse 12, for the ministry of this service, this generosity, is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. Full stop. That is what it means to be gospel-rooted. When generosity flows like this in your service, you are saying, I am rooted deeply in this understanding that Jesus is my Savior, and his righteousness is attributed to me, and my value system is different from the world. I value what he values, and I'm rooted deeply in that. We look at the rest of this. And the generosity of your contribution for them and for all the others. Verse 14. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. And that's what it starts to look like when you're generous, when I am generous. Generous with my whole life. Generous with money, but generous with my words. It was Mother's Day not too long ago. I watched as my kids gave gifts to my wife, their mother. They know what she likes, and it's great. But what she treasures more than anything else are their words. My oldest son just said, uh, Mom, when I think of you, I think of this. And then he listed uh, 26 things, just words maybe two words. This is who you are, Mom. 26 different things. Yeah. We don't think of our words as something to be generous with all the time, but they're so powerful. We can be. Now, how in the world do we stay empowered in generosity? Well, if I set a standard or give you some kind of rule or something, that works for a while because guilt always works for a season. But the engine's not big enough to power generosity. What we need is gratitude. We need significant gratitude. If our generosity is powered by gratitude, it expresses our confession in the gospel of Christ. It it, it tells the world that we're rooted somewhere else. We're rooted in the kingdom reign and rule of Jesus here and now. 
What happens when we're grateful? Our love for God and others grows because we're embracing the extravagant love of God for us. It is actually, when we trust, it's that stepping out in faith. And what God says is, that's what pleases me. In fact, it's the only thing that pleases me is your faith in me. When you trust me, I, I know that I'm worshipped. So our hearts begin to change, and pretty soon we start to give away money, time, talent with radical generosity. At least that's how the world would view it. And we do it freely because we love God and his kingdom more than we love stuff. And we hold God as security more than the security found in things or money. That's what it means. Well, there's another way that Paul goes about explaining this. So if you would, flip over to um, 1 Timothy. Paul is training up Timothy, and this is a very instructive letter to him. And we're just going to go right to chapter 6. And uh, the context here is that Paul is needing to speak about a number of things, false teachers and true contentment. He's basically saying, hey, listen, don't forget the gospel. You'll always be able to know and understand if somebody is preaching freedom and truth versus somebody that's preaching incorrectly. But let me talk to you about contentment. So if you would, let's take a look at verse 6 here through 10. Another way of talking about this. But godliness with contentment is great gain, says Paul to Timothy. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Now listen carefully. They fall into a snare, into many senseless and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is Paul just simply saying, Timothy, you need to trust. Okay, This is how you're going to do it. Don't put your faith in those other things. Don't grasp them. And when you're teaching the people, tell them, don't hold, just hold your hands open. And let this God give to you as you give. Don't close your hands. Those cravings and those graspings can lead you into ruin and much pain in your life. So now we land the plane here. Flip over to verse 17 of the same chapter. And Paul goes on to say, As for the rich in this present age, full stop, I don't know how, what you, if you feel like you're rich or not. And I'm talking now materially. I get it if you say I'm rich beyond measure spiritually, but just materially. If you sitting here represent the United States of America next to the whole world, we would be in the top 1% of the richest people in the world. Does that make sense? I know we went through a thing a number of years back, the whole Occupy Wall Street and the 1% versus the 99 and all that. But put us on the world stage and we're all in the top 1%. 
So this is speaking to us. That's all I'm saying. You can't go, oh, must be talking about somebody else. No, this is us right here. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. First off, God delights in our enjoyment of material gifts. This isn't me trying to tell you, you should skip one or two or three coffees this week so that you could feed a child in another country who is hungry and poor. That's not me saying, hey, those lifestyle changes need to be made. What I am saying is if you're going to drink that coffee, you should enjoy it. That's what I'm saying. Whatever your heart decides to give, you should be cheerful. And the only thing that's going to drive, the only engine strong enough to drive that kind of generosity is gratefulness. Here's what God is saying. When we quit worshiping our money and start worshiping God, we will have freedom to be generous. 10%? Let me just give it to you straight. God doesn't want your tip. It's not even a good tip. If you go to the restaurant, you're going to tip more than that, aren't you? God doesn't need your tip money. He wants to be worshipped. That's what it means to be gospel-rooted, to worship. Be thankful for all the things that you've been given, spiritually and materially. Be rich in that. So that's what generosity is. That's what it looks like. And the paradox is, if we open our hands, we give, we receive. We grasp, we lose. The table restories us every week to understand what's been given to us, Jesus. This table represents his grace, and this is a feast. We actively get to come forward, okay? Now, let me just share with you really quickly a few thoughts as you get ready to come to the table. Jesus was super generous, and he displayed it in a whole bunch of different ways. Does anybody remember his first miracle? Yeah, water into wine at Cana. Family, not a well-to-do family, having somebody get married. Jesus and his entourage shows up. It's a family friend. Wedding goes on. They run out of wine. And Jesus' mom comes to Jesus and goes, hey, they're kind of out of wine. So, you know, can you do something? And Jesus goes, Mom, it's not my time. I can't do that. Then he obeys his mom. Okay. And so he gets the servants and he goes, Hey, fill up those jars. And the jars are 30 gallons apiece. And so they fill them up with water. And then he gets the main steward of the whole wedding to come over and taste the wine. And the guy goes, Oh my God, this is ridiculous. This wine is so good. This is all backwards. We serve the good wine first. Then when everybody's happy, we can put anything out there. It doesn't matter. You have done this in reverse. 
which is true. But here's my question to you this morning. 180 gallons of wine? Like, what kind of party is that? Okay, here's my guess. They couldn't make it through one jar. I don't care if the party was a week long. They couldn't make it through one jar. Well, what does it say about Jesus' generosity? Well, you can say, well, symbolic, but that little family is going to have five jars of the best wine ever. A boon to the family. Jesus just kind of sort of showing his generosity. Here's a couple other stories that just capture me, though. You remember the one where he's preaching and he's on the seashore and he gets in Peter's boat and finishes preaching and then he turns to Peter and says, hey, push out into the deep and let down your nets. And Peter goes, Lord, you know preaching and I know fishing, okay? And that's not going to work. He didn't say that, but he really did, probably, you know, in his mind anyway. He said, oh, it's your bidding, Lord. We'll go out. Just kind of, I'm sure. But Peter's like, this is ridiculous. It's noon. The fish are at the bottom. They're not coming to the top. We fished all night. We caught nothing. They press out, let down the nets. The boat gets filled so much so they got to call another boat. And they're sinking. And what's Peter's response to it? He falls on his knees and he says, away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. What's the recognition? Yet Peter understands that this kingdom reign and rule of Jesus is complete. He's even God over the fish. Does that make sense? It's unbelievable. And Peter, Jesus says to Peter, hey, I'm going I'm to teach you a new way. You don't even have to catch fish anymore. You're going to come catch men. As you can see, Jesus' generosity transcends all kinds of things, and I could tell two or three more stories, but here's the point. When you go back and look at Jesus' life and the stories that come from that, you can see his generosity in so many ways. The last one I would give you just as we come to the table is that moment when he's sharing the Last Supper with his disciples, and they get done in Luke. And you remember what happens immediately after they take the cup and the bread? A fight breaks out as to who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Do you remember that? Now, if I'm Jesus, I'm mad, and I'm probably going to say something. But here's what Jesus says. You're my friends, and you've stood by me in all my trials. He's very generous with his words. And at the end, you're going to sit on the 12 thrones, ruling this whole kingdom. Really, after a fight breaks out? That's what you're going to say, Jesus. Words are powerful. But they're probably, that probably pales in comparison to what happens next. Peter is overwhelmed and says, Lord, we'll follow you. We'll do whatever. And Jesus says, oh, Peter. Actually, he says, Simon, Simon. Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. And it isn't like Jesus says permission denied. What Jesus says is, But I have prayed for you, Simon. And when you turn, strengthen your brothers. Think about that for a second. We're going to come to the table. This is the God of the universe who prays for you and me. 
Scripture says that Jesus intercedes on our behalf right now. I thought we were the ones that were supposed to pray. But here is this generous God praying for you and me. Yes, it is gratitude that drives this train. Plain and simple. And it's this table that you're invited to to come fill up on his grace. All grace. Abounding in all grace. All sufficiency in all things at all times. That's why we retell this story every week. And that's why you and I need to build into our lives this sense of gratitude. And by all means, be cheerful when you give it away. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It's clear. I know that in my own heart, I'm looking for some kind of standard or something that I could mark myself of as to whether or not I'm living like you would have me live. But you have said that this is an issue of the heart and that will require me trusting you. So I pray this morning that each one of us would be in that position of trust, that as we come to this table, we would recognize that the only ones that are allowed at the table are those who have declared that they're sinners and in need of your grace. That's the only requirement. May you relieve the guilt and open our hearts to the value of generosity that is your very nature. May you cause us to be accurate witnesses for you. We absolutely depend on the grace found at this table. As we participate, may Jesus Christ be glorified.